primary care knowledge boost, psoriasis. Hello and thanks for joining us for this episode about psoriasis with Dr Rachel Hilton. Yes, if you haven't listened to the last episode or her episodes before that, um, Dr. Hilton is a specialty doctor in dermatology. Um, Today, she is going to talk us through psoriasis, um, what it is and differentials to consider, as well as associated triggers and comorbidities. Yeah, we ask her about managing different types of psoriasis and how you might change management for different patients. And her take on management is brilliant. She breaks it down into a really simple way of thinking about it. We also get her advice about when to refer patients, both urgently or routinely. We hope you enjoy. So thank you very much for joining us again, Rachel. Um, It's lovely to have you back. Good to speak again, thank you. Would you mind introducing yourselves again, just in case anyone hasn't listened to any of your other lovely episodes? I am a speciality doctor in dermatology, working in the Wigan and Lee area. And I work in both the community service, which is for patients with eczema and psoriasis, but also in the secondary care dermatology department, um, doing general dermatology clinics. My background, though, is very much in primary care, having worked as a GP for about 23 years. Lovely. So today's episode is all about psoriasis. So first of all, what is psoriasis? Well, first thing to say is it's common. It affects about 2 to 3% of the population. It is a genetically determined, systemic, auto-inflammatory condition. What happens at skin level is that there is over-proliferation of skin cells, that the process of new skin cell production is speeded up about 20 to 30 times in affected areas. And so what the patient experiences is a thickening of the skin. It's an inflammatory condition, so it can be very, very itchy. The skin becomes reddened and as those as those extra skin cells pile up on the surface, scale develops, typically a very silvery scale. We can, we can see that there are both early and late onset types of psoriasis, almost rather similar to what we see with diabetes. The, the genetics of psoriasis are really rather complex because... Up to date, I think in excess of 12 different rather subtle genetic changes have been identified that would predispose the individual to developing psoriasis. And we maybe all have one or two of these. But if an individual has developed more of these changes, then they're at risk of developing psoriasis at some point in their life. And which genetic changes they have inherited probably determines whether they have early onset or late onset psoriasis and also determines which pattern of psoriasis they're prone to because there are quite a few different recognised patterns of psoriasis and, and any one individual tends to keep the same pattern over the years. So, for example, some people may have psoriasis that's, that's limited to their scalp. That's the only area affected. Some people, as as is commonly seen, have plaques on their limbs and trunk, particularly on their elbows and their knees. Some people only ever develop flexural psoriasis in the groin area or the axillae. The pattern of guttate psoriasis is is well recognised. This is often the first, first ever occurrence of psoriasis for many people with the development of many small silvery 
patches of psoriasis over their trunk and limbs. Some individuals, of course, develop very severe psoriasis with widespread psoriatic areas. They can become erythrodermic, which is when the majority of the skin is affected. And some can develop another severe complication, which is generalised pustular psoriasis, again, affecting the majority of of, of the skin. It's quite complex. There are a lot of different um, areas and things to think about with psoriasis. Mm. Are there any triggers for people um, to start developing the um, psoriasis? Oh, definitely. So in somebody who is genetically predisposed to getting psoriasis, a lot will report that a stressful event was the initial trigger, maybe losing their job, a bereavement, sometimes pleasant stress such as getting married. This is commonly reported. Infection can be the initial trigger. So guttate psoriasis is often felt to be triggered by an infection such as a streptococcal sore throat. And HIV has been noted to be a trigger sometimes in those that are, are prone to developing psoriasis. There are also certain lifestyle changes that very definitely can exacerbate existing psoriasis such as alcohol. Now, it's well recognised that uh, patients with psoriasis on the whole tend to often have a higher intake of alcohol than the general population. And this is often probably just a coping mechanism because of the stress of having psoriasis. But it's also been shown that the higher an individual's alcohol intake, the worse their psoriasis tends to be. And equally, if alcohol intake is reduced, it can become more amenable to management. Likewise, obesity. Now, it's recognised that individuals with psoriasis are more commonly obese than the general population. This may be just down to the practicalities that when you have psoriasis, it can be painful to exercise. Your joints may be sore. Your feet may be sore. Psoriasis itself can make the individual more prone to becoming obese But it has definitely been shown that if an individual with psoriasis loses weight and brings their weight down to a healthy level, again, the psoriasis can improve and become much more responsive to treatment, whether that's topical or systemic treatment. Trauma can definitely be the initial trigger for psoriasis and can make existing psoriasis worse. So if somebody who's prone to psoriasis goes and has a surgical operation, you may see psoriasis coming up in the wound as the skin heals. Mm -hmm. And trauma to the skin, such as scratching, can can bring out more psoriasis where the skin is being scratched, also known as curbness phenomena. Okay, yes, quite a few triggers there. Very very much so. It's, It's a complex picture. Um, And I think because you've mentioned the different types of psoriasis, your answer to the next question might depend on which type of psoriasis is presenting. But what might be some of the important differential diagnoses? Well, let's start with the classical appearance of plaque psoriasis. That's well demarcated plaques being plaques. They're raised, they're elevated from the surrounding skin, and they're covered with a very silvery bright white silvery scale. So if we think of some of the differentials, a common one would be uh, a dermatophyte fungal infection. You're not going to see the silvery scale on a patch of skin where there is a fungal infection. The skin will be scaly, but, but not the silvery scale that you get with psoriasis. When you're looking at psoriasis on the scalp, a common differential in practice is that is uh, seborrheic dermatitis on the scalp. 
With seborrheic dermatitis, the scale on the scalp is much more yellowy. Again, it's not got that bright silvery colour. And also, in seborrheic dermatitis, the scale is more diffuse rather than being in well-demarcated plaques. A differential for guttate psoriasis would be pityriasis rosea, mm. both commonly occurring in teenagers or young adults. With pityriasis rosea, the affected patches are scaly, but in pityriasis rosea, the scale is in a ring just around the inside of the red, of the red patches, as opposed to the silvery scale that's covering many of the patches in guttate psoriasis. Mm. It's very often necessary to differentiate psoriasis from eczema. And here, one of the big differences is that psoriasis is very typically well demarcated in a way that eczema usually isn't. Eczema is much more diffuse and variable from one body area to the other. Psoriasis will be, will be much, more, much more well demarcated. Another important differential, if there is just one red scaly patch on the skin, is between psoriasis and a Bowen's lesion or Bowen's disease. Bowen's disease is often mistaken for a solitary patch of psoriasis. With psoriasis, once again, you're going to have the, that classical silvery scale. It's very unusual with psoriasis to get one solitary plaque that just does not budge. So if you see a solitary plaque, go looking for other areas of psoriasis. So have a little look on the scalp. Even if the patient doesn't think they have any, have a little look on the scalp. Have a look on the knees and the elbows. Have a look on the sacrum because these are common areas to find other plaques. So if you think you're seeing a solitary plaque of psoriasis and you really can't find any other, it may well be that it's a Bowen's lesion, may well be Bowen's disease. A much less common but important differential diagnosis is that of mycosis fungoides or cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Patches of mycosis fungoides can initially look like psoriasis, but one of the classical differences is that with mycosis fungoides, you see lots of patches of different size, which is not what you tend to see with psoriasis. Mm. So be rather suspicious if you see lots of varying patches. You know, you could be looking at mycosis fungoides then, but it's, it's much less common, much, much less common. That's brilliant to go through. Um, what comorbidities are associated with psoriasis? Oh, th this is such an important area. To sum it up, psoriasis is so much more than skin deep. Common comorbidities, we should start with mental health, anxiety and depression, there is a very high incidence of anxiety and depression in patients with psoriasis. Suicidal ideation is significant. At any one time, it is thought from research that approaching 10% of patients with psoriasis may be having suicidal ideation. That's loads. This is simply just a reflection of the realities of living with psoriasis. Yeah. Psoriatic arthritis is thought to affect about 30% of patients with psoriasis on the skin. And psoriatic arthritis is so important to detect because it's an inflammatory, destructive arthropathy. Now, we know now that the metabolic syndrome is more common in patients with psoriasis. So the incidence of hypertension, obesity, 
impaired glucose tolerance, all are raised in some patients with psoriasis. And we know now that it's particularly those patients that also have psoriatic arthritis that have the higher risk of metabolic syndrome and consequently a higher risk of ischemic heart disease. There was a very important bit of research that I was directly involved in called the IMPACT study some years ago now with the University of Manchester. And we found in that that in a, pop, in a primary care population of people with psoriasis, approximately 40% had previously undiagnosed markers of the metabolic syndrome, mm. i.e. raised blood pressure, altered glucose tolerance and hyperlipidemia. So there's, if you were to screen your patients with psoriasis, there's a pretty high yield of abnormal findings there. There's also an increased incidence of inflammatory bowel disease in patients with psoriasis. That's really interesting. Yeah, like you said, not just skin deep. There are so many important things to be considering in patients that are, might be considered as just presenting with a skin problem. Yeah. And we might touch on sort of management, including those, but... Talk us through from the start, if you wouldn't mind, um, your initial approach to certain types of psoriasis treatment. Well, I'm looking at this very much from a primary care point of view. So essentially, we're talking about topical management because systemic management is, the, is, is very much based in secondary care. Start off by thinking of the tools that you have at your disposal, the types of things that you can prescribe. And I would say that there are four main types of products that you can prescribe. Number one, emollients. We've then got products that are anti-proliferative that are going to slow down that overproduction of skin cells. We've got items that are anti-inflammatory. First and foremost, topical steroids, of course. And then we've got items that we can prescribe that descale areas of psoriasis. And it really depends upon what pattern of psoriasis you're treating as to which of those items are relevant, which, you know, which are appropriate and, and what you might prescribe. Let me give you an example. If you're treating scalp psoriasis, you don't need an emollient. So you can, you can, you can move on from that. You definitely do need an anti-proliferative agent, and anti-proliferative agents include vitamin D analogs and coltar. So this is why we often introduce a coltar shampoo, and we might introduce, or very often will introduce, a very useful product such as Dovabet gel, which contains both calcibotriol and betamethasone, because scalp psoriasis can be incredibly itchy. So we, we definitely need an anti-inflammatory as well. So a combined product that's got both calcibotriol being anti-proliferative and betamethasone being anti-inflammatory is very, very useful. We may on the scalp need to descale, which can involve a product such as Sebco ointment, which contains salicylic acid that softens and breaks down the scale and helps lift it gently from the scalp. But contrast that with flexural psoriasis affecting the genital area. Again, we don't really need an emollient because it's a naturally moist area of the body. We do need an anti-proliferative, but we can't use calcibotriol because that is too irritating on the 
genital area and similarly would be too irritating in the axillae or on the face. But there are other vitamin D analogues such as calcitriol, which you can use safely on the genital area. It's tolerated there. You, you're going to need an anti-inflammatory, so a moderate topical steroid such as Umivate cream or Trimivate cream, very appropriate in treating flexural psoriasis. You don't get a buildup of scale in the flexural areas because of the natural moistness of the area, so you don't need to prescribe Sebco on those areas, and it'd be far too irritating anyway. And if we come to plaque psoriasis on the limbs... So the classical scaly plaque, say on the knees or elbows or sacrum, yes, you want an emollient. So you want to prescribe them a nice, thick, creamy emollient, something such as double base gel, something that the patient particularly likes the feel of. Yes, you want an anti-proliferative agent. Yes, you want an anti-inflammatory agent. So one of the combined calcibotriol and betamethasone products is very appropriate and the most effective th- that we now have at our disposal is cutaneous foam, which is calcipotriol and betamethasone. If you're struggling with that, you may need to add a descaling agent such as Sebco ointment, which can help with its salicylic acid. So you see, we're, we're sort of dipping into the toolbox of things that we can prescribe and tailoring it to the area of the body that we're treating. Yeah. To give you one last example, gut ate psoriasis, yes, an emollient is really useful, but because you're putting it over a large area of the body, something nice and light, one of the emollient lotions would be what I would go for there. You can't use one of the combined anti-proliferative and steroid products in gut ate psoriasis simply because the area that you're treating is just too large. Those products would really be applied just to the psoriasis and not to normal skin. So you want something when treating gut ate psoriasis that you can just simply spread over a large area of skin, including the normal skin. And what's appropriate here is Exorex lotion. This contains coal tar and so it's anti-proliferative. Also, to a mild degree, is anti-inflammatory. But if the patient's also quite itchy, you could prescribe something like Betnovate RD cream, which is betamethasone, ready diluted in a one in four dilution, a moderate topical steroid. And I'll often prescribe both Betnovate RD and Xorex lotion. And I'll suggest to the patient that they try and put the Xorex on twice a day if they can after moisturising. And apply the Betnovate RD at another time in the day, fitting in with when their skin skin tends to be most itchy. Mm. I thought it was um, Betnovate reduced dose. (laughs) So that makes more sense for it. (laughs) Yeah, ready diluted. Ready diluted. It's a curious one because, of course, if you look in the BNF, it'll tell you that Betnovate RD is moderate in strength. But, of course, if you find Betnovate in the BNF, it'll tell you that's a potent topical steroid. Yeah. Now, the question is, if you dilute betnovate, does that make it any the less potent? Mm. And, of course, it doesn't really. Just less of it. There's just less of it, <laughs> yes. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll, leave that, I'll leave that thought with you. <laughs> that was a really nice uh, kind of methodical, structured way of thinking about psoriasis because I remember I used to be completely overwhelmed about the choice and what am I supposed to use for yeah. which bits and there's too many products but that was a really nice way of thinking about it. 
Good, good. Well, hope it helps. Yeah, especially thinking about, I didn't really know where coal tar fit in really. So knowing that it's an anti-proliferative and that's what vitamin D is as well, then sort of, yeah, you can start using the weapons better. Um, do you mind me asking actually, just in terms of um, Exorex? So that's one that you can use for gut psoriasis because does it, is it does it spread quite well then? It, it spreads very, very well. It's a nice light lotion. Hmm. Because it's cold tar, it's got the cold tar smell. Yeah. But I find I find with that, people either love or hate the cold tar smell. If you don't like it personally, don't let that put you off prescribing it because it's a really, really useful product for gut ate psoriasis. And I think a lot of it's down to how you sell it to your patient. You know, they want something that's going to be effective. And if you say to them, right, Start off with with your emollient lotion, then put this on, put the X-Rex on twice a day. I find it's very much liked and well tolerated by patients and it'll often prove very, very effective. And I think having prescribed it, if you review your patients at about six weeks, many of them will be seeing and, and feeling an improvement then. So they'll be happy to continue with it. If they weren't seeing an improvement at that stage, you can then start to think about whether you need to be referring them on. Perfect. Um, I was also thinking um, whilst you were discussing the different types of treatment there that I'm assuming that similar kind of tips apply that what we talked about last week with the eczema. Um, So in terms of the order of application and the volume that you prescribe and the duration of which to use the products. Well, I think as far as duration goes, with your active treatments, these are the anti-proliferative and anti-inflammatory treatments, what we advise is apply until the psoriasis is flat. Okay. Because when you can't feel the psoriasis, it'll still be looking a bit red. But at that stage, you only need your emollient. So what I always tend to suggest is that the patient starts with their emollient assuming it's an area of the body where they're going to be applying one. And when they're putting the the emollient on, they can just be sort of thinking to themselves whether the psoriasis is palpable, whether whether it feels raised. And then straight after applying the emollient, they can then apply their anti-proliferative by putting enough on to feel as though they've covered or coloured in the psoriatic areas. With an area such as the scalp, of course, you're not applying an emollient. You, you, you don't need to moisturise. I think one of the key tips on the scalp is to be gentle. I've already mentioned that psoriasis is worsened by trauma. I've heard all sorts of admissions from patients as to what they do to their scalp um, to try and lift the scale that comes with the psoriasis. They use their nails They'll use a comb in a really quite a harsh manner on the scalp. They feel as though they're doing good because they, they're lifting off some of the scale. But really, all they're achieving is more overproliferation of skin cells and also increasing the degree of itchiness. So when I'm advising them about how to apply something like Dovabet gel, I'll stress that they need to massage it into the scalp really quite gently and avoid any sort of scratching or rubbing particularly of the scalp they need to be quite gentle that's a really good point so if you had quite built up uh, scalp psoriasis and we're thinking of descaling and using something like doverbet gel where it's got the anti-proliferative and the anti-inflammatory how does that work in terms of when to use what <laughs> that's that's a very good question because it does make for quite a complex treatment regime and i should stress at this point that 
it's really worthwhile whilst you give the patient all the information about what you're prescribing and how to use it, stress that they don't need to use everything every day. If they've got a busy day, they don't have to use everything that day. So if you're going to prescribe Dovabet gel and Sebco ointment for the scalp, their day could look something like this. They get home from work or college in the early evening. They can apply their Sebco ointment to the dry scalp and they need to apply it for a minimum of 30 minutes. But that's enough. 30 minutes is enough. Then they need to go and wash it off with their preferred shampoo. And it'd be nice if they're using a coal tar shampoo, but it's not essential. Once they've then dried their hair, having washed it, then they can apply their Dovabet gel overnight. Dovabet gel is always applied overnight because it's a very oily formulation. So nobody likes to put it on and then go out into, into the big wide world. So they put the Dovabet gel on last thing in the evening and sleep in it overnight. Some people put a shower cap on to protect the pillow. Some don't, but you, you can suggest that. Yeah. Then they need to wash the Dovabet gel off in the morning. And there's something very, very important to advise your patients about here. You need to advise them that they need to apply their shampoo to the scalp before they get their scalp and hair wet. Because if they don't apply the shampoo to dry scalp and hair, if they get wet first, the shampoo will just slide off the Dovabet gel because of its oily formulation. Then, of course, they'll dry their hair. They'll still look really oily and they'll not thank you for that. They'll never use that, that stuff again and it'll be a wasted prescription. But if they get their shampoo and they massage it into dry scalp and hair, then they jump under the shower and get the hair wet and lather up the shampoo. They'll find that that removes the, the gel much more successfully. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, I was actually thinking back to the, the comorbidities um, and the increased risk of all the different things that you talked us through. Um, and just wondered if there was any difference in management of those things with people with psoriasis or um, would you just be managing them in isolation as you normally would with anyone else? I wonder if you'd think to screen for them quicker. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think back to the impacts study that I mentioned. Yeah. 40% of patients with psoriasis in primary care found to have previously undiagnosed hypertension, hyperlipidemia or glucose intolerance. That's a high yield, 40%, isn't it? Yeah. And a lot of the patients that were included in the impact study were younger than 40 years of age, so they wouldn't be picked up by the the existing primary care screening protocols. No, yeah. And, you know, if you, if you also think of the fact that, as previously mentioned, many of our psoriatic patients drink too much alcohol as a method of stress management. They're also more likely to be smokers, and equally smoking can then exacerbate their psoriasis. They're more likely to be obese. So, that there are so many factors that can potentially influence their risk of something like ischemic heart disease. I think it's maybe, it's not something I would confront the patient with at the first consultation about the psoriasis. I think there's an awful lot else that you want to be dealing with first and foremost. But maybe in a follow-up appointment, you need to be really taking a wider view of their health and maybe screening for all these relevant all, all these relevant factors and giving them the lifestyle advice 
giving them advice about weight management and weight reduction and pointing out that this could really positively affect their psoriasis management. Yeah, it's a win-win. To give you an example, I've, I've seen somebody after weight loss be able to halve their dose of methotrexate. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's a big reduction. And then thinking about um, quite a specific case, um, still in primary care, still thinking about the topical treatments, um, what modifications might you make if someone was planning pregnancy? Or was pregnant and came in with psoriasis? I think one thing I'd say, first of all, is with patients with psoriasis, it's really helpful to avoid unplanned pregnancy if possible. I mean, certainly for those patients who are prescribed a systemic treatment for psoriasis, it's really essential to avoid an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. I think the first thing you can do is talk your patient through what they may experience whilst pregnant and also in, in the postpartum period. Usually during pregnancy, psoriasis tends to improve and it's probably because of the steroid-like effect of all their raging hormones. As far as topical treatments whilst pregnant, obviously emollients, perfectly safe, so you, you can really make the most of those. Don't forget that emollients have been shown to be anti-proliferative even if you're not prescribing anything else. So don't underestimate the benefits of, of, of emollients. Now, in terms of anti-proliferative treatments, calcipatriol has not been shown to be unsafe in pregnancy. Um, if you were to look at the BNF, it would say avoid, because, of course, the BNF takes a, a naturally very cautious outlook on things like this. I note that on the DermNet New Zealand website, which is a really useful resource uh, used by dermatologists and patients alike that I think you're going to reference at the end of this podcast. Now, what they say on the DermNet website is that you should be sticking to a maximum of 100 grams of calcipatriol a week to be safe. And actually, that, that's, that's a lot. With the majority of your patients, they won't be reaching usage as high as that. Topical steroids, because of course many of the products containing calcipatriol also contain beta-methasone, topical steroids are also felt to be safe in pregnancy. As long as not, you're not using potent or super potent topical steroids on the majority of the body. It's only if you're treating very large percentages of the body area that you risk systemic, uh, significant systemic absorption, which could affect the fetus. Um, coltar is thought not to be safe. There's no evidence of that. But like all these things, it's never been effectively tested. So I think I would stay away from coal tar products. Likewise, topical calcineurin inhibitors, which are very useful actually on flexural psoriasis, they should be avoided simply because the risk is completely unknown, but there's no evidence of it being dangerous. Phototherapy, of course, is very safe. So if the patient is pregnant during the sunny months, they can take advantage of natural phototherapy. If one of your patients who has psoriasis comes to see you because they found out that they're pregnant and you also know that they are taking systemic management for psoriasis or if they come to ask you for advice about pregnancy in the future and they're on systemic psoriasis management, I think it's important to point out the guidelines regarding different drugs that we use systemically. For methotrexate, 
women need to be off methotrexate for at least six months before becoming pregnant. For acetretin, which is used less often, but nonetheless very, very useful, women need to be off acetretin for at least three years before becoming pregnant. Yeah. For cyclosporin, that's not felt to be unsafe in pregnancy, but of course cyclosporin is often associated with hypertension. It can cause hypertension. And so that becomes very relevant were it to be given to a patient who is pregnant. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise. Three years, that's a long time. I'm assuming that that if people are of childbearing age, they're being counselled about that when they're starting it. Oh, yes. But sometimes those conversations have happened years before. Yeah. And life can change quickly, can't it? So I think it's something that, yes, it's, it's, it's crucial for secondary care prescribers to obviously have these discussions with their patients and to have them again, not just assume that they've been, it's all been covered at the first consultation, but also primary care physicians, I think, need to know about the safety profiles of these drugs with regard to pregnancy and conception. Absolutely. Yeah. There is a lot of shared care prescribing of methotrexate and things. So yeah, I think people are pretty good normally but yeah it's that's really important especially like the timelines thinking about the systemics and just generally uh kind of reaching our limits in primary care um what patients do you think need referring into dermatology either urgently or routinely well if we start with nice guidance nice would say that a patient who has psoriasis affecting 10 percent or more of the body surface area should be referred that's quite a lot of patients. I would also stress patients in whom quality of life is being significantly affected. That in itself is an indication for referral. Anybody in whom the diagnosis is uncertain, I think in that sort of situation, refer, then then a confident diagnosis can be made. Now, in terms of urgent referral, any patient with erythroderma, so these patients have erythema and flaking skin affecting all areas of the body. Their fluid control is affected, so they're very, very thirsty. They're dehydrating. Their temperature control is affected. They're very, very shivery and cold. These patients can actually develop high output cardiac failure because of the changes in the body. So these patients need need you to pick up the telephone that day to your local dermatologist. Generalised pustular psoriasis is also an indication for urgent dermatology referral. Refer any patients who you feel just need a lot of explanation and education because we're very happy to do that, especially in the community clinic. We've got more time than there is in primary care. And very often with that extra, extra education that we've got the time to give, We may not necessarily change the prescription very much, but we we may be able to make that topical treatment much more effective by telling the patient how to use it to best effect. And I think a last indication for referral is if your patient is asking for it. I've spoken to so many patients in secondary care who will say to me, why couldn't I have been referred sooner? I've been asking and asking, and it's taken me years to get to see somebody, which is a rather 
sad thing to hear. It's sad. I guess I'm just thinking from the other point of view. The uh, I, I I know that there's always concern about waiting lists and trying to keep our referral numbers down. So it is quite tricky to decide who to refer. I think listen to your patient and really understand how their psoriasis is affecting their life. Don't just look at what they're showing you on the skin. Listen to how it's affecting their social life, their work life. Think about their mental health. In, you know, inquire as to whether they are feeling anxious or depressed. Because I think the more you find out about how they are finding living with their psoriasis, the better idea you'll have as to whether referral would be beneficial for them. Okay. So just thinking about um, summing up, you've given us a really nice list of um, resources, uh, but just thinking, are there any ones in particular that you'd like to highlight? And um, what are your take-home points from today's discussion? Well, as far as resources go, for, for those working in primary care, I highly recommend the Primary Care Dermatology Society website. They've got very good management guidelines, including for psoriasis, lots of pictures, lots of images. One more website is that of the British Association of Dermatologists, both for patients and professionals. There are lots of downloadable information leaflets covering different aspects of psoriasis, such as the condition itself. There are individual leaflets for particular treatments, such as the systemic treatments and also topical treatments. I've mentioned the Dermnet NZ website. That's another very, very good one. For patients, I would recommend that they have a little look at the Psoriasis Association website and also PAPA, which is the Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthropathy Alliance. I think that's worthwhile referencing as well. In terms of key points, engage with your patients, listen to them. They are experts in their condition. They really are. Really listen to them and find out about what it is about their psoriasis that's bothering them, that's affecting their life. Yeah. I think just, just one, one sort of final thought about psoriasis is you can't do it all in one appointment. You can't take a really good history, find out about how the patient is affected by the psoriasis and put together a good management plan and start to consider and manage comorbidities. So don't look upon it as a sort of one appointment fix, but engage with them and follow them up and see them again and try and work through the various things that we've discussed. One one final little tip, don't forget to recommend a prepayment certificate. Uh, yes. Our prescriptions for them can cost an awful lot for those who pay prescription charges. So, so important, same as with the eczema treatments, because there's just so many prescriptions that they can end up with. And I think you mentioned it last time, if someone's faced with that choice, then they'll try and pick and choose. And that's just not what they want them to do. This is exactly what happens. Yes. Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Rachel. Another insightful uh, discussion with you this time about psoriasis. So, yeah, that was absolutely lovely talking to Dr. Rachel Hilton again. What were your learning points, Lisa? Um, I think I was just struck by, um, first of all, I was struck by the numbers in the population. Cause she said two to three percent of the population are affected by psoriasis, which feels like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of got me. And then whenever she went on to talk about the mental health um, and psoriasis and the fact that 10 percent of people with psoriasis experience suicidal ideation. I was mm-hmm. like, if you think that two to three percent of the population um, have it and then 10 percent of those have suicidal ideation, that's a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the big take homes for me. 
Um, what about you? No, absolutely. I think impact on quality of life and mental health and psychosexual mm. impacts as well. Um, definitely came across and um, in clinics and talking to her as well that she's so passionate about treating it and um, because of all of those impacts. So yeah, um, I really also uh, liked being reminded about the 30% rate of psoriatic arthropathy that it's associated with. Uh, and then there's sort of reasons for triggers, including things like HIV, which I'm always trying to think about on my radar, um, especially after our HIV episode, which was fabulous. Um, but yeah, just all the different things. And I loved when she talked about trauma at the beginning as a trigger in terms of any kind of scratching to the skin. I didn't put it together with scalp psoriasis and when people itch or use use things. And I've seen a few patients where they're trying to take off the scale in different ways. And I hadn't really responded to that in, in a way now that I could sort of tell them, oh no, that, that'll be doing it more damage. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then obviously her um, method of thinking about management and breaking it down into those four categories and just thinking about your toolbox and which yeah. bits of the toolbox you can take out for which types of psoriasis. Like that's revolutionary. Um, <laughs> so good. It's like, okay, what do I need when? So yeah, those are the types of psoriasis these are the things that would be useful and this is how you adapt it to pregnancy so it's just yeah, li literally perfect. every eventuality <laughs> yeah and then obviously the how to apply um especially with the scalp yeah. psoriasis like that was that was really useful information as yeah, well yeah and the caveat of you don't have to do this every day but this is kind of ideally what you do which is yeah it's just going to be gold for actual you know patient outcomes they're going to they're be so good and then obviously like the link with um the cardiovascular yeah. um, risk factors as well is quite important because I was particularly thinking about how these are these can be quite a young population of yeah. people and it, that that's quite um, significant in terms of the amount of um, maybe future disease that you might be able to prevent if you can screen and catch mm. people early by just having it kind of on your mind. Going back a little bit in terms of the differentials, um, the one plaque being possible bones and if sort of go hunting for other plaques but if you can't find any and there's just one quite um, stubborn one then think bones um, and then also having mycosis fungoides as the cutaneous t-cell lymphoma yes. as part of the differentials and sort of to consider is, is was really important for me as well just overall a very useful chat with rachel again fabulous as usual so yeah if you want to get in touch with us you can do so in by all the usual channels or um, tell a friend because we like it when when the news spreads about us and we get new listeners um, so that'd be great as well or you can uh, subscribe to us on podcast channels or uh, rate us on iTunes thank you very much for listening and until next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public this was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, the content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.